0: Welcome to Frame of Reference: Informed, intelligent conversations about the issues and challenges facing everyone in today's world. In-depth interviews with Sauk County's leaders and professionals to help you expand and inform your frame of reference. Brought to you by the Max FM Digital Network. Now here's your host, Raúl Labresh.
1: Well, welcome. A well-welcome to you, too, as uh, we continue a conversation with Kurt Miney. Kurt is a conservation biologist, an environmental historian, and writer. Uh, Well-known in some circles, I, I <laughs> believe, So, and maybe not so much in others, but that's okay. That's what this podcast is for. So... <laughs> to help more people to know that. Uh, in uh, if you listened to last week, you know we got started on a lot of con- uh, conversational topics that wove in and out of different fabrics. Um, so hoping today we can continue that. Kurt, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and joining us here on Frame of Reference. Um, I'm hoping uh, that the, you find afterwards that the time was well spent. <laughs> we any all, time with Raul is time well spent. <laughs> well, we're all conservators of our own time, oh, right? right. Uh, or have to be conservations of it because we all have a limited amount of it. That's right. Uh, it's interesting, too, isn't it, how uh, you know we spend so much time uh, going after more money, amassing more wealth. Mm. And yet the greatest resource any of us has is our time. Because we invested in things that are, you know, meaningful and others invested in things that are totally pointless. And it doesn't have anything to do with wealth (laughs) because some of the richest people in the world are some of the unhappiest people. And you have to wonder, well, could you maybe spend your time differently that would help you to find a deeper sense of happiness? Mm. Anyways, so... Kurt, we were talking in the last episode about this. We got into a topic that I think is is somewhat covered in the your article uh, called mm-hmm. "Crossing the Great Divide." Mm-hmm. Um, that tends to that deals with um, largely the differences between uh, the agrarian sensibility and the urban sensibility. Mm-hmm. And you go further into that that it's not just about urban and rural. It, it, there's a continuum of urban, suburban, exurban rural and and wild lands mm. um, which I, I thought was interesting in and of itself mm. but there's also a it points at least in my world it points to a um a, a need for a central a centrist position and in the end of that you talk about providing leadership um that uh, one of the things that's lacking perhaps in today's world is that our leadership is not a leadership designed to connect the dots. It's a leadership that's designed to divide us or motivate us towards a, uh, a wealth-generating uh desire mm. <laughs> i mean amazon would not be what amazon is it were it not for our own desire to have things as quickly as possible and have that thing that i know i saw somewhere that i can get and be like a czar and go boom right. on the enter key and have it show up at my doorstep
0: and cheap
1: yeah and cheap you know have the better price than i'd ever see in old Salk city wisconsin right? right but uh you talk about effective and visionary leadership in the public arena Unites us or should unite us in the great divide, mm. across the great divide. But the absence of leadership has left a vacuum that only dedicated citizens reaching out to one another can fill. Leadership in building the radical central, the, the sorry, the radical center mm. will not come from above. It is more likely to be sitting in the chair next to you at your next meeting. We are at a time in our history. When leadership has little to do with title or position or budget, it has everything to do with vision, passion, knowledge, imagination, skill, independence, and generosity of spirit. I read that and thought, I want to (laughs) be... That kind of leader, you are that kind of
0: leader. Raul. Well, that's, it, that's exactly what that passage was getting at.
1: And it, yet, I think about you know, isn't it important? You know, Margaret Mead's work. You know, never, never underestimate the power of a you know small group of people to change the world. In fact, right. it's the only thing that ever has, right? right. Um, and yet, I I look at some of the things that are in my own family. You know, I have family in Milwaukee that. Um, you know, believes that uh, President Biden was part of a secret cabal that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a cabal that, uh, you know, were pedophiles and, you know, some of the outlandish mm-hmm. things that were put out. And then there are the people that think these, you know, radical loon- loonies that are part of... Um, QAnon, Mm. you know, are, are in some way subhuman and need to just be all rounded up someplace and locked up in a loony bin, you know, and I think how in the world will it be possible to reconcile those such disparate elements of our society and yet our only chance of survival in Mm. my mind is to find a way to do that. So we talked a little bit about how that, how we got to where we are right now. Can you talk a bit more about the things that you've seen over time that have divided us, and continue to wedge us further. And that's sure. at some point we have to, somebody has to come along and say enough. Well, we hope,
0: you know, <laughs> yeah. history does offers no assurances on these things. We like to think we're self-correcting and then we eventually find our way back. But we also know sadly, tragically history will sometimes lead us veering off into horrible circumstances. So, and part of that, passage you read, there's a whole story behind it I won't go into, but it's to say that we all have this responsibility. We all, if, if we are to conserve the public good, the greater good, the general welfare, choose whatever phrase you want, but we are all responsible, at least in a democracy and in a, I'd argue in any society, um, to be leaders. Leaders, <laughs> since that essay, I've kind of boiled down even more when i speak to students and i'll say don't ever confuse leadership with power or authority or position or wealth that's not leadership that's just merely power <laughs> so there's a moral dimension to this and and morality whatever sources you are drawing on to create your own set of ethical standards we draw from lots of things in doing that um It all has the same thing. It's all about what's a healthy relationship, right? Anyway, I'm getting off track a little bit. (laughs) But um, to begin to unloosen the tight knots we've put ourselves into, and we pull on both ends and only make them tighter and less easy to resolve, we have to decide we want to do that. That's where it starts. If we want division, we will have division. If we want to find ways forward, we will find ways forward. Um, and part of that, for me, and what I was trying to do in that particular article you're, you were reading, was to understand the history of a little deep, more deeply. And that essay is fifteen years old now. Yeah. Sadly, I wouldn't have to change much about it. But
1: two thousand seven, huh?
0: So what that whole essay was about was about the growing difference in American life culture politics between our urban population and our rural population. That didn't just happen. There's always there's of course always forever been a tension between urban and rural folks, the city mouse and the country mouse, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's woven through mythology and history since we began to congregate in larger numbers in any place. Anyway.
1: Safety in numbers. Yeah, well, yeah. that
0: was part of it. Yep. And there's also power in numbers, wealth in yep. numbers yep. sort of thing. Yep. Um, and there's creativity in numbers. Mm-hmm. So and this takes you deep into archaeological history and all that. But more recently, um, I've been very attuned, going back to where we started talking in this whole conversation, remember, about soil and conservation and watershed and that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. So, uh, that story we told was about the 1930s. And then what comes, World War II comes along, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens? After World War II, we begin to see a really changing American landscape with mobility, with wealth, but particularly for the point of this conversation, what was happening to our rural landscape as in agriculture becomes more and more industrial? And suddenly, you need fewer and fewer people to grow more and more food. But with all those other, you know, it's first it's when pesticides and herbicides come into being.
1: It's mm-hmm. when greater machi- crop yields,
0: machinery gets bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And It's when the 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 farm economies in different sectors begin to concentrate mm-hmm. um, and gets bigger and bigger. And for Wisconsin mm-hmm. audiences, I always pull out the numbers on this. In 1945, give or take a couple years, when Aldo Leopold. At the end of his life, was writing about the future of the land. How many dairy farmers were there in Wisconsin, Raul? How many would you guess?
1: Oh, I've heard this number before, but um, I, I, I believe it's in the thousands. 150,000 dairy farmers. One hundred and fifty. 1000 okay. dairy thousand. farms in okay. Wisconsin. And they were different sizes back in they the were those smaller. days. It was yeah. 20, 40 acres, whatever. You might have 20,
0: 30, 40 cows, and yeah. that's a pretty big dairy back then. Yeah. What do we have now?
1: <sighs> Maybe a thousand. less than 7,000 statewide than seven. in Wisconsin. Right. Less so. than 7. I should know these numbers, too. I work at McFarlands for God's sake. But this sake. is why I, I share them, yeah, it's yeah, it's because 150
0: the, to 7 less than 7. These should be right. common common numbers for us in the dairy state of
1: Wisconsin. Well, one thing I do see very, very close up is the stress oh, that absolutely. today's farmers are under and, and the number of family farms that have been lost yeah. both to the economics of scale right. that, you know, a small farmer, you know, a hundred head of cattle, which used to be a huge farm. Right. You just can't make it anymore because the prices of cultivating. You're on a, you're on a treadmill. Yeah, and, it, it's just, uh, you know, so the big production farms are the ones, well, I mean, who can afford a $500,000 tractor. It's the big production farms. I mean, they they can turn that into a profit. Or you go point. into huge
0: debt, and yeah. you have to use that machinery because that's what you went into debt for. Right. So you get right. on the treadmill. But, you know, again, for the purpose of this conversation, just pause and think what it means to have lost 140,000 independent, well... <laughs> Mostly independent, but mm-hmm. certainly, you know, family farm, family owned
1: farm businesses. That were generational in most cases. Right? And
0: were contributing to the health and well being of your local economy in small towns mm-hmm. and had a whole culture that evolved with it. And over those, what, seven, eight decades now, seven decades, as. This has happened, and we don't even think about it. And it's not like it was a purposefully, you know, bunch of people, evil people trying to do away with this Mm -hmm. economy and culture that our grandparents and great grandparents knew. Because guess what? The same thing has happened in cities as we deindustrialized and sent manufacturing jobs overseas and did away with the unions and so forth. So there's commonality of interest in how our economy between Mm -hmm. rural and urban and in both ends of that spectrum from urban to rural how both of them have been eviscerated and concentrated so what happens when you go to the big box store you don't have 25 local businesses filling your small town main street anymore Mm -hmm. you have one business and that money gets sent off leaves the community it doesn't circulate around so these vast changes in our landscapes and our economies in the landscape began to create this division between urban and rural places. Meanwhile, the rise of suburbia, another post-war phenomenon, mm-hmm. draws people from both sides. Rural mm-hmm. people move into cities and towns and suburbs. Urban people, leaving the cities for various reasons, move to the suburbs. And we have to mention it. One of those reasons is race. Mm-hmm and our inability to reckon with the deep problems that race has played forever in american life and culture. and while we're on that theme let's mention that the landscapes we're sitting on are of course we're not always in the hands of their current owners that mm-hmm. we are on native lands. in wisconsin Sauk county here we're blessed. we are so blessed in so many ways with beauty, abundance, fertility abundant water, but mm-hmm. also with our cultural mix too. So, you know, we, our Ho-Chunk neighbors are not something out of the past. They are our neighbors. And they are, these are the lands that in 1837 right. were mm-hmm. taken out of the Ho-Chunk and the Ho-Chunk were removed. But their loyalty to this place brought them back. And that's a whole other story to be told on yeah, that. Yeah, I,
1: I, I work up at Ho-Chunk uh, fairly regularly and, um, I'm always amazed at um, the graciousness of the Native Americans that still that are working there in that I, I have never sensed, very rarely have sensed any animosity towards me as being a white person and what I represent mm-hmm. in their culture. And I don't know if I'm just missing it, but it, it strikes me like a lot of racial issues where um, – if I were an African-American citizen, I don't know that I would be able to look at any white person and have any sense of, you know, this is a common human being because you've never treated me like a common mm-hmm. human being as far as, so that that division. Right. So one
0: way to think of this moment we're in is where all these incredible changes in our human societies and communities with all our diversity and all the changes in our economy that have affected rural and urban communities alike. All of these things are coming to a head, it feels like. And when we're in a situation like that, we retreat into our little camps and our little silos and our identities. And instead of saying, how can we solve this? How can we bring people together to solve problems? Which is one of my definitions of leadership. Um, instead, what do we have? We have those who endlessly lust for the power and wealth that comes from dividing us from seizing upon those points of anger or jealousy or suspicion or fear and they drive the wedge in and it's expert yeah <laughs> there's a whole science built on how to drive wedges in to divide us so that whole essay is all about how can we come to terms with this how can we begin to focus not so much on the things that divide us but on the things that connect us And so the key line in that whole essay, it's the only line I've ever gotten applause on in hundreds of talks in my life. There's a line that says, we can dwell on the things that divide us, but we dwell in landscapes that connect us. We're connected by food, the producer and the consumer. We're connected by our ecological realities of water and wildlife and soils and so Mm -hmm. so, so, forth and such. So we are living in a time when all the money, attention and power goes to exploiting the things that divide us. And there's not much incentive to do the hard, heavy lifting work of focusing on the things that connect us. And yet I still have pretty strong faith that most of us still want to do that. And we do it every single day in our own quiet ways. And that's where true
1: leadership is. Finding ways to connect. Um, There's another portion in that, uh, what you, I think, referring to earlier, the cold civil war. Mm -hmm. We find ourselves divided between rural red and urban blue, buffered by shades of purple suburbs. With little questioning of the premise, we willingly place ourselves and demonize others somewhere along a one-dimensional right-wing versus Mm left-wing axis. So, but the later then say, our ways of valuing, using, managing, protecting, and thinking about land, and just about any other issue these days, have contributed to the discord. Our ways of caring for and restoring it and our relationships to one another, our, you know, I think of our community, sense of community, must contribute to reconciliation. To do so, however, a renewed conservation consensus must gain ground and that will require building new constituencies, creating different alliances, and providing greater technical capacity. Above all, it will require taking seriously the precept that land is a community to which we belong. A land divided against itself cannot be conserved. And it's just as a house divided against itself cannot stand. I fear that it is perhaps one of the things that if I dwell on that too much, (laughs) it is the thing that will make me feel the most despair is how much longer even the people that make money and gather power from divisionism How much more can they continue down the road of divisionism before they realize that their profits are going to suffer if we, you know, turned into, you know, a society of civil war because we've been so polarized that we no longer trust, recognize, respect, care Mm -hmm. about a differing opinion? I I don't know— Uh, You know, I think this relationship between you and I, I think the relationship that I can have with, you know, some of our guys that work out on the service floor and are, you know, avid Trump fans and still think, you know, the election was stolen. And that's just, that's like a, that's just a litmus test. That's not really at the core of what's going on. Mm -hmm. What's really going on, I find, is a lack of trust between the people that are trying to impart some information to the people that don't have time for their information. They're just trying to get Mm by. Sure, and again, is a leader
0: someone who exploits that lack of time and lack of you know we all we're all stressed more yeah. so now than ever. Of course, um,
1: can we empathize with the other side well enough to bridge right. the gap? Because it's impossible for me to have a, a discussion with someone that's extremely loyal to Trump and really believes the rhetoric that has been put out by him. Right. If I don't understand right. that one of the things he did as a a leader, a, no. you know, polarizing. Yeah. There, there you go. You <laughs> see, that's <laughs> that, the
0: first thing. This is the dilemma. I mean, do we call, Ad- to go back to the trope we always do, is Adolf Hitler a leader? Yeah. yeah. Is leading someone to a into an abyss over the lip of the canyon—is that a leadership? No, leadership does not mean going forward when you're at the edge of the canyon. It means turning around and going the other way.
1: So um, it is interesting, isn't it? Because you do think of them. I mean, they're they're basically cajoling the lemmings over the cliff.
0: Well, and to be honest, I've never felt that antipathy toward those who are on that side of the current political divide. And again, we fall into this, as I said in that essay, this simplistic right versus left boring old same old same old thing that has been there and there's some legitimacy to it but there are other axes there are other angles and dimensions to our political and social realities that simply saying right versus left it just falls you as soon as you accept that you're already in the
1: rut so it's the difference between leadership and exploitation.
0: Exactly. And recognizing that not just the
1: individual
0: of the former president, but the movements that culminated, he's a symptom. He's a symptom of a deeper ill. And they might say the same thing about someone on on the other side, but that doesn't get us anywhere either. So when do we do the quiet work? <laughs> The quiet work of understanding how we came to a point of animosity like this. And again, um, what that essay is about, at least one aspect of this is we have destroyed rural economies and communities just as we destroyed manufacturing economies in the cities. And unless we deal with why and how that happened and how all of us both benefited from that in a weird way, but we also Mm -hmm. have paid dearly for it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless we understand that history and that dynamic we won't be able to solve this so how do you go forward well you do it with empathy and fellow feeling as best we can muster it and knowing that we're all going to get angry at some point <laughs> yeah um, yeah
1: that's my thing but I get you <laughs> Raul
0: knowing your work knowing that you've devoted so much of your time in your case to theater for example as we started out of this conversation, I mentioned I came from an arts family. Another thing that connects us is art, music, food, mm-hmm. beauty, mm-hmm. the things that are fundamental to us as humans, the things we thrill to, You know, the things that bind us together and that we it goes beyond words. And we need to go beyond words now. We need to go to what we feel.
1: The simple scene between one of my favorite moments in all of recorded theater, written theater, is the scene in Our Town where George and Emily are expressing their interest, love, whatever you know, you, however you want to call it. But the, the the reason, the way in which they realize that um, the other has deep feelings for the other and George expresses it in his simplistic, you know, way and Emily even more so she you know the things that they see in one another that are attractive and all the while that that scene is playing out as they stand on ladders, you know, looking across to one another, the choir in the background is singing blessed be the ties that bind. Yeah. And I think about that that you know, where are the singers of blessed be the ties that bind? Mm-hmm. Where are the where the congregations of people that come forth and say, enough, yeah. I hear your pain. I understand that you know this, this population that was so actionable or so energized by our former president, they were unheard. Violence is the language of the unheard, Dr. King said. And it, you know, their violence was as much a manifestation of mm. their lack of being heard, respected, cared for, um, and that was exploited. Yeah. So how do we get to the point where, hey, you know, we understand that we were painted as the enemy here, but I am not your enemy and you are not mine. And we're – I fear that the the table at which we would have those discussions, at which we would have that meal has been so shattered that somehow we have to build a table first. Well, that, the easiest
0: thing in the world and the most profitable thing in the world is to divide people. <laughs> <laughs> right it's an easy thing to get up there in front of people and say things that will make them pissed off right about someone else right easiest thing in the world to do right it's not genius it's not political genius to to do that you know that's how you win it's that's how you win yeah, yeah. so uh, you know but the hardest thing to do is to quietly find the ways to reconcile and to the real genius of leadership, um, political or otherwise, is to be able to find that common element, to grow it, to allow the person to grow with you as you interact and build a relationship. And it has to happen at every level, from the larger social level down to our one-on-one relationships. Mm -hmm. And finding the things that bring us together again, rather than the things that divide us. Mm-hmm. We've never had to deal with this, at least in our lifetimes. Uh, in the same way, we've had plenty of division all along, and it's been ramping up. But now we're reaching a point where unless we can resolve this soon, fast, and deeply, um, it's going to get darker, and there's yeah. going to be more pain. We're seeing it, in a sense, internationally right now. The last thing in the world the, the world needs right now is a land war, <laughs> yeah uh we've got big problems to deal with,
1: um, yeah. and my gosh, what a priority, huh? And isn't it amazing that that land war has unified yeah. so many people, I think because of the human anguish and the the sense of there, there no country, no leader has the right to do this to these people yeah.
0: and this is on top of in case of Ukraine, generations of pain. I, I had a chance to work in Ukraine in the 1990s. I won't go into the long story on that, but I learned a little bit. I've worked a lot in Eastern Europe in the post-Cold War years and had a chance to experience this dramatic change, and it was traumatic. I mean, there was both positives and it was also terribly disruptive to a lot of people. And I have told the story in the last few weeks a lot about my last day in Kiev. I was getting ready to come home, and I had like a couple hours to wander about the streets of this magnificent city, just beautiful city. And, and yet it was also a, a very impoverished time in the recovery after um, the Cold War and all that. But um, the last thing I practically I did was I was picking up some souvenirs and I picked up, uh, I stopped by a little stand. It was just a, a middle-aged woman with a little table on the street And I walked by, and I wasn't going to stop. And then I turned around because I caught my eye, and I walked back. And she was, uh, well, maybe you've seen this, the traditional Easter eggs of the Ukrainian tradition. They're called pisanki, Mm -hmm. pisanki. Um, This ancient art of, of painting eggs with incredibly interesting old symbology connected to it. And it just caught my eye. And I bought a half a dozen of them as souvenirs. I still have them. They're on my desk right now. <laughs> and to cut to the chase of this story, I asked this you know, woman, what tell me more about the eggs? She gave me a little lecture while we were standing there. But she told me her personal story too, which was she was a PhD nuclear physicist who had lost her job in the transition out of communism. And her way of making living now was to use this ancient art and skill that she had learned from her grandmother and get by. And I've always I thought about that woman more in the last three weeks than I have in the 20 years, but how so much of her story was about resilience. It's about doing what you need to do under difficult circumstances um, and yet drawing on a deep cultural well of creativity mm-hmm. that was a mark of that culture and still is globally famous skill and art
1: and i
0: pulled those eggs out by god i still have three of them
1: <laughs> well it, you know it, it makes me think of another element of this and you know, we talk about the decay and the uh just destruction of our urban areas. Yeah. And that, again, I think there's a lot of the roots of the hatred and animosity right now is those people that were dispossessed. Yeah. Their lifestyle was taken away because GM or whatever factory moved out and went to Mexico. And what's amazing to me is all of these stories of all these things that people are so pissed about, mm-hmm. and they, we can't seem to see the fact that that was all money-based yeah. Those those problems were not caused by Democrats or Republicans. Those problems were caused by people that, in the words of Cabaret, one of my favorite musicals of all time, mm-hmm. when the MC comes up and says, money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Yeah. And, you know, if you can keep that in mind and go, well, wait a minute. What? where's the money in this? Well, the money is in, we want to sell more cars and we can't sell cars if we keep raising the prices because that's what the union wants is more money for their people. So we're going to move these to Mexico or we're going to automate more of this stuff. So I'm sorry, you guys are going to lose your jobs because we want to sell more cars and uh, we got to make them affordable. And oh, and by the way, we want to make profits. So that's at the root of so much of the division, if not all of the division. So, What's the answer? Do we say, well, you know, making money is a bad thing. We're going to just, you know, we're going to get rid of money. Do we do Star Trek and have credits <laughs> instead of, you know, money? And you, everyone is taken care of to some extent, um, but you then are allowed to pursue things that will re-better be mm. uh, our society and our, yeah. our relationships. I, I
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll put, a, put a last note on that for, from my perspective. As a conservationist, whether you use that term or not, as a human being who cares about the world we live in and its <laughs> ability to keep itself healthy and keep us healthy, um, <laughs> what do you think? We have I'm a sorry. different, well, I shouldn't say we, I can't speak for all, but there's a tradition in conservation. And Aldo Leopold's a very key part of that. Maybe one of the most important parts of it in the Western, again, tradition but it also harkens back to Native American and other indigenous cultures where we understand that an economy is not simply the human economy. It's not simply the things you and I as human beings are so privileged to be able to use and develop and exploit that the economy is, Leopold had a line. There's another quote I can draw. The most fundamental kind of economic loss the human race can suffer is soil erosion. When was the last time you ever heard an economist speak about soil? Never, I'm going to guess. The point being that an economy is not what is imposed from the top down. It's what bubbles up from the land through us human beings and our, our human economy. And if that foundation is not kept sound and healthy, soil, water, plants and animals, and people, if that fundamental foundation of our economic and social and even physical well-being, as we have learned to our tragic uh, ends in the last couple of years, um, if we are not paying attention to the fundamentals of our economy, which are not inflation and whatever, it's the health of the soil and the water and the plants and the animals. That's how we can begin to get perhaps a little bit beyond this simplistic left versus white right kind of way of thinking that not all was well before in those old good old days mm-hmm. in the 1950s or 60s or whatever you think of as the Golden age, there were problems embedded in that that we're still paying for. Yeah. but yeah. if we can reorient and understand that we can all contribute to the regeneration of our ecosystems and our cultures and economies and communities, Then we can begin, perhaps, to have conversations that are healthier and begin to reclaim the common ground instead of allowing those who would divide us to succeed yet again and ratchet it up even further.
1: Right. Well, look at the the fundamental quality of the Ukrainian situation is the fighting for the land. This is our land. You can't come in and take this land. What do you think you're doing? Um, Not recognizing that they have a a right to their land. Um, and
0: guess what? There's a million other species that will also have a say in this. Yeah. When I would took that trip to Ukraine, we went from Kiev down to Odessa, all the way across, all the way to the east to Crimea. On that trip I saw my first demoiselle crane. One of the 15 species of cranes you can come to the Crane Foundation and okay. see a demoiselle crane, a beautiful petite bird for huh. cranes anyway. So, yeah, it's us humans saying, that's my land. That's our land. That was my land. This should be my land. I want this land. But the land also belongs to the more than human world out there. Yeah. And some cultures have respected that and honored that, and they have thrived for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Because unless you have that respect, you're not going to. That's what Leopold had to tell us uh, when he said, we – Abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, then we may begin to use it with love and respect. So that's the radical center position. The radical center position says we can come together if you are willing and want to meet halfway. Look, as my friend used to say, my friend who prompted that essay, he said if you want to go fight, there's plenty of space go fight, have at each other, <laughs> knock yourselves out. <laughs> but here we are. We're going to put up our little flag, and we're going to say, come here if you want to try to find solutions and if you want to work together and if you want to respectfully talk about what we can do together. Here we are. Right. Go fight if you want.
1: All right. In fact, some people, that's all they know is to fight instead of finding that still calm voice that says, yeah. no. Folks, my guest is uh, Kurt Miney, who uh, is a conservation biologist, environmental historian, a, uh, a professor, a medris, Or no, you're an adjunct professor. I'm at a university lowly university. adjunct professor. Okay, which, uh, <laughs> at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which, um, by the way, is a world-class university. But we're, uh, that's because I'm an alum, and I can say that, and it is true. Badgers. <laughs> Go Badgers. So, in fact, right now, they're really going, aren't they? So, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we'll be right back here on Frame of Reference, being brought to you by the 99.7 Max FM digital network. McFarland's Problem Solvers Playhouse presents the Campaign Conundrum. Okay, we need to come up with a great idea for this McFarland's campaign. I cannot do it, man. How do you describe a store that has power tools, auto-care, and hardware? It defies the laws of physics. (laughs) McFarland's Scottish. Scotty, right? I'm not feeling it. Deliberations went on for some time. And then... What was that voiceover thing at the beginning of the commercial? McFarland's
0: Problem Solvers
1: Playhouse presents... That's it! We've got a name and a place! 780 Carolina Street in Sauk City. Now, if we just had some writers... And we're back here at Frame of Reference. Uh, Sauk County's only. I'm going to say only... (laughs) podcast that uh, talks with the movers and the shakers of Sauk County and beyond. So uh, whether they know they're I'm movers and shakers or not, yeah, you're, you're beyond that. Uh, my guest today is Kurt Miney. Kurt is uh, an old friend and, uh, and one of those people that the more I've gotten to know him, he may be sorry to hear this or hope he, I hadn't said this, but the more I've gotten to know him, the more I've wanted to know him. Oh. And uh, he's a, uh, not only is he uh, learned and uh, credentialed in uh, ways that are significant. In my mind, he's a conservation biologist, an environmental historian, a writer, which you can tell it, his, his writings, which I would scare most people away. Don't let the title scare you away. He is truly a gifted writer and uh, uh, has a way of crystallizing ideas and issues in ways that resonate with me at least i hope they would resonate with others and they obviously have because you've written more than one but uh he's also an adjunct professor at the university of wisconsin madison um, a fellow with the international Crane foundation and the center for humans and nature i had to look up what a fellow <laughs> is because i'm used to thinking what a fine fellow he is and uh i found that it it's in the your terms it's it's a uh a distinguished or a, a, a learned person that's knowledgeable in a specific field or domain. I'm glad is I that, know now. Yeah. Is I've that, been doing it, this all
0: these years. Yeah. I wasn't quite I mean, sure
1: myself. I was, you know, what, what does a fellow do? A fellow such as I do, I think was uh, something Randall Duck Kim taught me years ah. ago. But, uh, we were talking, Kurt, yeah. um, we're all over the spectrum, aren't we? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, people listening to this are like, where are they going with that? So, but uh, I, I did read a couple of the papers more in depth. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking on and off about uh, your extinction paper. It's, it's yeah. titled The Extinction and the Community of Being, which I thought that had such an interesting title. Mm. But towards the end of the article, you quote uh, Pope Francis. From his Laudato Si. I, what is the Laudato mm-hmm. Si? Yeah. Is that a, a formal writing that the Pope Ish, is, is is the, okay. It was an encyclical. Okay.
0: you know, that is, that's the Pope's dissertation. That's okay. like when he really wants to say something serious <laughs> he says about a big all, topic.
1: Uh, Laudato Si you know, is yeah. it. So you better listen. It's like E.F. Hutton, right? People mm-hmm. turn around and listen. But he, he uh, Pope, Pope Francis asked us that a species be honored for their intrinsic value not for what we make of them Mm. in his words it is not enough however to think of different species merely as potential resources to be exploited while overlooking the fact that they have value in themselves each year sees the disappearance of thousands of plant and animal species which we will never know which our children will never see because they have been lost forever The great majority become extinct for reasons related to human activity. Because of us, thousands of species will no longer give glory to God by their very existence nor convey their message to us. We have no such right. Mm. Uh, Wow. I got
0: tears in my eyes just hearing you read that.
1: Well, it's just, you know, and he he, he says in so many ways basically the difference between what we've been defining as leadership and exploitation. You know, we are, we are exploiting the resource of humanity mm. and the good, the potential that human beings have to do. We have the technology right now. We have the knowledge right now. We have the, the capacity to do so much good. And yet we are allowing ourselves, each of us are responsible for allowing ourselves to be pitted against one another mm-hmm. and to be led off to fight wars that need not be fought with each other. <laughs> and one has to wonder where are the voices standing and saying Enough, Mr. Political figure, whoever you are. Enough, Mr. You know, boss of a huge corporation that you have the world listening to because you have three trillion dollars or whatever the you know magic number is. Enough, Hollywood star whose lifestyle is so admired because it's so opulent and ostentatious and and just captivating that I want to be just like you. Enough. Mm. Let's go back to the land as you talked about it. Let's go back to the fundamentals of when we exchange ideas, when we exchange kindnesses towards one another, when we exchange compassion and empathy towards one another, that's when we are at our best, when we look towards the common goal, which I think is in our Constitution for the common good. general welfare. Yeah. Preamble
0: to the Constitution.
1: And yet— me, 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 me. We came out of the me generation, right? I mean, the the you know, immediate gratification is something you and I both lived through. You know, have it your way was Burger King's motto for a long way. You know, we, we we are caught in this world of thinking it's all about me, and yet our only way of survival is to think about the other. And instead of letting ourselves be pitted against the other, to realize that if the other doesn't do well, I will not do well either. If I don't respect the other, I can't expect respect myself. I, not going to happen.
0: Or the bumper sticker. We all do better when we all do better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that the rich folks as well as the you know the, the, the poor, downtrodden, I think no one else has had yeah. a life as hard as theirs. And that's what the Pope was
0: trying to capture in that amazing document, which I read the night it was issued, and I've read it three or four times since in its entirety. Um, and I should back, you know, step back a little bit and say uh, Pope Francis is building on a tradition in the Catholic Church of stewardship and care for creation. Some people call it, or of, uh, you know, he even took his name Francis because it was, of course, uh, in deference to to Saint Francis, who was. <laughs> as has been called, the patron saint of ecology. Um, That's how he was deemed a long time ago by a historian. Um, That's my middle name, actually, Francis. There there you go. Well, there there is in the tradition, and not just the Catholic Church, but in every great faith tradition, every great tradition, even the lesser traditions that we no longer think of as global religions, but in every faith tradition there is a legacy um, that has been reclaimed actually over the last 20 years of looking at how these great bodies of thought have referred to the world around us. We tend to think of ethics and uh, morality as involving just you and me as human beings one to another, and it is that. But there are also in these traditions of ethics and belief systems, ways of understanding our kinship with other creatures Mm -hmm. and with all of the creation, if you will. So fascinatingly, in the last 20, 25 years, there's a huge body of work in every tradition on the face of the earth that looks to say, look, we've got big problems. We're going to need the wisdom of every human community that we can muster to uh, bring to this discussion. And so the Pope's encyclical, which was released in 2015, was sort of a in some ways a culmination of a movement within the Catholic world, um, but also reflected in other traditions. In fact, relevant to where we are right now, one of the key sources for the Pope's discussion in that document was actually that of the ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Church. They don't have a Pope in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. What they do have is the patriarch in, in Istanbul mm-hmm. who speaks for many of those communities. And he, even long before Pope Francis, was speaking to this moral obligation we have to other beings and to the systems that we depend on. So there's this amazing global conversation that's unfolded among great moral leaders and... Um, And so that's how we need to think about this, is, you know, we are the great thinkers and great hearts that we look to, you know, Martin Luther King, Aldo Leopold, um, you know, Chief Seattle in the native tradition is just one of hundreds. Blackhawk. Blackhawk, in his own quote that I offered you at the beginning of this conversation, um, we all have... These, in our backgrounds, varied as they are. And now we're in this moment where we need to connect them and draw them. So what the Pope was trying to do was saying, yeah, um, in my community, my global community of a billion people. um,
1: (laughs) There's a few Catholics in the world. We
0: have a deep tradition of honoring the individual and the human. um, But we also have another tradition of honoring all of the created world. And the power of that statement Uh, It was released just before one of the major climate change conferences. And so he was speaking specifically at the moment to that. But um, so, you know, this is the moment we're in where we are doing our best, at least those who care about this stuff, to find every every bit of wisdom we can use and and see how they connect with one another because it all does boil down to the same thing of us showing respect for one another and honoring our relationships and our kinship with all all others. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so what does that mean down on the ground in a practical way for you and me as <laughs> local folks here in Sauk County, Wisconsin? It means a lot. There's so much good stuff going on in our neighborhood here. I could go on and on for another two hours about yeah. amazing neighbors of ours right here in Sauk County from very different backgrounds and with different purposes, but ultimately, trying to make the world a little better place, and that's what it's going to take. All of us in our little ways in our own local places um, acting on this shift in ethical ideas. And so we have so much to build on here in Sauk County that it's um, one reason I've stayed here for a long time is because I know. I know that the work going on here is as important as anything going on
1: anywhere. Sure. Sure. So that speaks to the the question I generally try to uh, wrap up mm. our podcast together, um, I uh, <laughs> I ask people about the legacy that they want to leave behind, and I actually l- look at the, co- the final sentence of um, your work on uh, de-extinction, and I think this is a legacy in and of itself, but you say that humans have defined our humanity in part just through our inventive be- genius but also through our deepening awareness of creation's unique and ephemeral manifestations and of that which we have needlessly lost we are still becoming human still coming to appreciate the creatures and places that we share with and within the community of being that mm. strikes me as a a statement of great hope in that we are we are still becoming human. Mm-hmm. We haven't stopped. We have not halted in our collective desire to be more human. And perhaps that is our greatest hope. And, and we are you're right, we do we are blessed to live in a community where there are things like the fall art detour, <laughs> you know, with Donna Newark and uh, and the wonderful, uh, you know, mirth that that festival mm-hmm. uh, imbues this local area with, and way beyond to Chicago and beyond, which both of them are from Chicago as well, as I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that your legacy? Is that the, the 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 thing that you hope will come of all this? Is that we'll perhaps together and maybe mm-hmm. through your leadership become our, more human? Our our, our leadership? leadership, okay become, that we become more human. Maybe even our membership.
0: Okay. <laughs> and that's a favorite word of Wendell Berry, the writer Wendell Berry, and he speaks of our membership in, in one another. And it's funny, as you read that last passage, you know, I don't know if I can go back and read my own writing. <laughs> I'm usually so tired of the drafting, and I don't want to read it. Uh, but now that I hear that, you know what really uh, comes to being? If you look at that passage, it, I think it comes right after a moment when I quote the great Another great moral ethical leader, Tiknatan, mm-hmm. who just passed away a month ago or month and a half ago out of the Buddhist tradition. And that you know, I'm reflecting really some of the writings of Tiknatan there, who spoke to he uses this term interbeing. Mm-hmm. What he means by that is none of us are individuals, per none of us are lone individuals out there all by ourselves with a pure identity that is only unto ourselves we are all products of our relationships and the whole point of that essay was to say a species isn't just a thing it's a set of relationships Mm -hmm. and that's a very kind of the buddhist tradition is very strong of course in this way of thinking it's all about relationship and other traditions too So, you know, I was reflecting a lot on him when he passed away, I'm not a deep scholar of his work or anything. I've read a couple of his books, but they're just chock full of uh, amazing insight and wisdom from that tradition that I've benefited so much from. And so that final passage is all about how, yeah, we are individuals in the sense that I can see myself and identify myself, but guess what? My own body is made up of millions of organisms, trillions of organisms that are not human cells.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: this is a whole nother area yeah. that Carl research. Sagan says
1: we're made of stardust. We yeah. are ultimately made of stardust.
0: <laughs> exactly. And Joni Mitchell put that into song too. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, even our own s- physical beings are not us. They are, we are communities unto ourselves of our human cells with, the microbial diversity that keeps us healthy. So we're all not just beings, we are all interbeings, And that's what that la- last passage was all about. Hmm. So once we accept the reality of the fact that we as individuals are collections of collectives, you know, we are collections of collections, um, then we can begin to, reorient ourselves to a way of being in the world that honors the relationships instead of either taking them for granted, exploiting them, commodifying them, degrading them, polluting them, selling them, (laughs) um, thinking we can own them, um, we can begin to say, okay, we live within a very complex reality, and we start with the recognition of that complexity and fundamentally Realization of our kinship with all other things that make our lives possible. So, um, that essay, particular one, gave me a chance to kind of get up on my little, you know, soapbox. Yeah, I suppose, but yeah. you know, I'm you know, all of us we try to draw on all the things that shape us: our families, our friends, our readings, our Inter- music or art yeah. or, or whatever. Our um,
1: interbeing events. And I
0: just probably had happened to read Thich Natan at the time that I was writing that. And I said, oh, my gosh, he's nailed it in this case. That, yeah, species go extinct. And, yeah, we have developed new technologies that, according to some, can bring back, quote, unquote, a disappeared species. Right. And they think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But you can't do it. You can't bring back a singular thing that will never exist again. Yeah. Yeah,
1: You you talk about the carrier pigeon. And even if we were somehow through our technology able to recode, redevelop a carrier pigeon.
0: Passenger pigeon. Thank you.
1: Passenger pigeon. It would not be a passenger pigeon.
0: Because it's not just the genome. Yeah, It's just not the genes that are wrapped up in our cells. It's, the unique circumstances and time and space of the relationships that make us who we are and what we are at that moment.
1: Right. The thing that goes beyond the chemistry. Yeah, right. Um, and
0: so, you know, we, we, we are not done being human because guess what? If we think we are, the world just changed. <laughs> you got to redo it. <laughs> you got to re-up and reconstitute your own humanity in response to the changing world around us. We're all wrapped up in a, in a web of relationships.:
1: I wonder if some of us are afraid of becoming more human, and that's why we go to war. It's an easy way to
0: avoid the question, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. And yet to be, you know I, you know, could we just say, "You know what? I'm, I'm tired of being exploited by someone that wants to use me to attain their own means or their own objectives?" And I want to instead choose to lay down my arms, to lay down my... Down by the riverside, I'm going to study war no more. Right, right, right. Um, While you and I are on that boat, I I, I think I can say that even more definitely than I knew before. So let's use this as an open invitation to those of you that like to join us on the boat or join us on the banks (laughs) of the river. And uh, maybe look at some flowers that uh, even he says the flower cannot exist by itself alone. It has to interbe with soil, rain, weeds, and insects. There is no being, there is only interbeing. Come join us in in the interbeing process of respect and trust and empathy and compassion and all the things that make us truly human, which even if we are successful with. Uh, artificial intelligence, I wonder if we'll be able to create a machine that is capable of compassion and empathy and uh, things at the base of being human. So the soil that we have uh, plowed together, my friend, thank you. Thank you for the time.
0: Well, Raul, thanks for uh, leading me into uh, places I wasn't sure –
1: I was ready to go and wasn't sure I would be able to get back from So <laughs> we, have, we have gone on so many journeys during these, this time. Um, folks, if you uh, didn't know, I've been talking with Kurt Miney. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into all of his accolades or his uh, accomplishments. I want you to go to KurtMiney.com and uh, find out for yourself and find some bits and pieces, um, mm-hmm. even at the Center for – Center for Humans and Nature
0: and the Aldo Leopold Foundation right here in Sauk County. These are the groups that have uh, helped me pay my rent over the years Mm -hmm. and um, given me the wonderful opportunities I've had to to, uh, freely explore these ideas and to do the work. Mm -hmm. So I'm forever grateful.
1: And we live in a country where that's possible as well. So, uh, you know, and you don't have to agree to, (laughs) to disagree. That's okay too. Uh, Kurt, thank you. Can't thank you enough. Really, I've been looking forward to it and honestly been somewhat afraid Ooh. of this conversation. I, I wasn't sure I would be up to it. So uh, it's one of those things where you know, I, I thought my stupidity could be you know, rampant uh, in our conversation and people would go, Raul, oh, my God, where is he going with that stupid, long-winded question? But you've restored my faith in myself.
0: Oh, <laughs> you're a wonderful, a wonderful uh, interviewer. And I'm not used to doing these things, so I appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, we walk these paths together, so I look forward to seeing you along the trail.
1: Well, you told me some while back you were a podcast fool. And uh, that, well, that,
0: all of a sudden, because podcasts are the new thing, oh, and everyone last, wants to talk to Kirk And Miley, During the pandemic, uh, ah, yes, of course. You know, people so, were like, "We got to do something," and so yeah, I went out and bought myself a better microphone, and ooh, ooh. I've done more podcasts in the
1: last two years than I've did ever. So <laughs> I'm
0: <laughs> starting interviews to learn
1: on top of interviews. I have to ask you one last question. Okay. I'm sorry, you made a comment. We ran right. into each other at the post office. Okay back a few months ago. Okay. You made a comment to me as I was walking away. We had kind of talked about doing this and yeah. other people you might you thought of. And you said, Raul, our democracy is at a greater risk than it ever has been in 150 years. Hmm. I wanted to ask you since then, <laughs> I think I'm aware of what you're talking about, but what do we do to mitigate that risk? This is the last question after yeah, speaking with yeah, you I for an
0: hour, a couple hours
1: now. Can we let's let's do this? Let's use that as a reason to have to get together wow. again. Yeah, well, and, and talk you know, about more. Who knows where we'll be in another month,
0: or six months, or twelve months, or years? You know. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I am deeply. I am not alone, obviously. Deeply concerned about our civic life, which gets expressed in our democratic processes, but. Um, Let's just say we can't passively sit and let things drift. It doesn't mean we have to go and beat each other up either. It means we, we who care have to find ways to find common ground if this democracy, if any democracy is going to survive. If we don't do that, if we don't say that there are certain shared core values that we must respect in our way of dealing with one another, the right to vote, right? The right to demand truth in, in mm-hmm. the discussions in the public airwaves, on and on. You know, um, As a conservationist, if we do not demand that we care about future generations, um, on and on. This core set of shared values um, that will allow us to at least have better arguments mm-hmm. instead of mindlessly beating up on each other then it's a pretty grim prospect. And the reason, going back to wrap it up, with the importance of the rural-urban split, I think it's not the only divide, obviously, but it's the one that literally others map onto.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: In Wisconsin, it's, oh, those people in Madison and Milwaukee. Yeah. In yeah. Madison yeah. Milwaukee, oh, it's those people out there in those red places in the state. Yeah. You know, well, if there's any... Silver lining is at least people understand that there is this divide now. When I wrote that essay 15 years ago, it was like screaming into the vacuum. (laughs) It's like, hello, we're going down this slope and there's no breaks and we have to start talking about this. Now at least people are aware of and talking about it. The next step is for all of you who might be listening out there to say, what can you do to contribute to a healthier conversation about the things that connect us? instead of falling so easily for the bait. The bait that says, no, you got to hate the other person and you have to focus on the things that divide you. So that's my appeal at the end here is to say all of us have those opportunities in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, wherever, to make those connections and focus on them and change our priorities. And then just slow down, yeah. <laughs> take a deep yeah. breath <laughs> amid this
1: swirl of change. We're all in. One of my favorite quotes, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this because I've never de- been able to find it, but my dad carried it around in his wallet typed up on his typewriter from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the, the quote goes something like, the vehemence of my opponent's argument convinces me that I am perhaps a little bit wrong, and he is perhaps a little bit right. <laughs> so, let's just consider that, shall we? Until our next time together here on Frame of Reference. Hope you can join us then. I'll be back with our closing comments here in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. Uh, 99.7 Max FM's digital network and Frame of Reference. Big <laughs> There's never been a better time to support small businesses and save big with Max FM Big Deals. Discount certificates from the Max FM Big Deals store will save you up to 50% off retail every day of the week. Local restaurants and wineries, healthy living and spa services, gifts for the holidays, and a whole lot more. New deals are added weekly. Check it out now at MaxFMBigDeals.com. That's MaxFMBigDeals.com. Start shopping and start saving. I hope you can sense the warmth of Kurt's character and the depth of his compassion for all living things and beings. I hope you can hear his passion for us to be the best that we can be. He's the real deal. I suppose I should admit that I'm biased because I like Kurt. He's my friend. I've watched him live with a consistent set of morals and ethics, and I've learned to trust him. I've learned, as have most people, that the advice or ideas of such professionals are pretty reliable. I know that they know what they're talking about. Even if what they say doesn't make me happy, my liking reality doesn't change it. Conservationists are in the thick of battles over things that many people don't like. Things like global warming and climate change. When those topics come up, we put our hands over our ears and say, La 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 la, not listening never stopping to consider that maybe they're just trying to get us to take better care of this home of ours called Earth. The data that conservation biologists like Kurt look at is alarming. Their frame of reference is based on observable, repeatable events, not opinions. So why don't we trust them to know what they're talking about? Don't each of us want others to trust us? If we're experts on football teams or cars or or carpentry or on everything, we all know someone like that, then why can't we stop arguing about what I believe versus what you believe? And instead, simply invite each other to look at the data together. Whether it's the best way to cook a turkey or the ways we are cooking our planet, data remains the one constant. Some data is based on facts and some is not. Make sure you know what type of data you're looking at. Stay well.